Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, after talking with Nick Redfern last week, I was thinking about the scene in the movie Independence Day, where the president... Why do you always bring up that movie? You love that movie, don't you? It's just something about what happens. It's such a cheesy piece of crap, that movie. But something that was said, which probably is not far from any kind of reality, which is president played by Bill Pullman says to his Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense during their first exposure to Area 51. You knew about this all these years and you didn't tell me? And the guy says, well, it's plausible deniability. I start wondering, you know, in the real world, when Bush became president, Obama, whatever, does somebody from some intelligence agency go there and talk to the president and say, here is something you need to know that you haven't heard about before it's not in your intelligence briefings or is that the situation where the president is the last on the food chain to know about things that maybe aren't public and shouldn't be public well if we're talking about let's say the ufo stuff uh i have to imagine that any president coming into the position this is like the last thing on their plate this is the last thing of interest to them this is the very last thing they're thinking about in terms of work to be done I think people who are interested in this topic really need to get their brains wrapped around the idea that for most people, all of these topics are completely peripheral to their lives. They have nothing. It has very little appeal outside of, you know, uh, curiosity sake, just sort of and basic curiosity sake. Uh, most people do not obsess over this stuff. And, you know, you're just coming into the White House as its newest tenant. I'd have to think that really, truly. Uh, this has got to be the last thing on your mind. Gee, what's the deal with the UFO reality? Mm, uh, I, you, you, it's just, it just I, I'm guessing it doesn't even come up for the most part. We know that there's been some interest on, on the part of people, you know, like President Clinton. Also, even uh, President Carter allegedly saw a UFO once, but we didn't hear much about that after but, he got into the White House. Well, Reagan definitely saw a UFO on a plane flight, but again... To see a UFO doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, one UFO experience is not going to necessarily make this the primary focus of your life. If you saw half a dozen UFOs over the space of a few years, maybe that would have a different effect on you if you had, you know, or if the sighting was a compelling enough experience to change your life and you say, my God, I've got to find out what's going on. But then again, he gets into the White House. Well, Gene, and for, they come the, in there and they yeah. say, this is the way things are. And that's it. And you know what? And he goes and does what he's got to do, because if you look at the engagement book for the president of the United States, they pretty much have him booked from the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to sleep. It's got to be the busiest job in the world. So forget the president. I just know based on my own life experiences. You know, here I am at, at 16, 17 um, at that point, I had already seen and experienced such incredibly weird stuff throughout my life, Gene, recurring experiences, some of which I've talked about on the Paracast, many of which I have not. This didn't occupy the primary focus of my life either. For, for, for most of my adult life, I just basically, this stuff would happen, and I would assimilate it into my life, and I had other things 
going on. Uh, it, it, this all, for me, reached a critical mass when we started doing the Paracast in terms of me now devoting some amount of my waking hours to reading books about this stuff, to thinking about it, to talking to other people about it. But up until we started doing the Paracast gene, this was something my, my friends knew very little about my, my experiences. I didn't spend a lot of time reading about this stuff. I just didn't. You know, the thought of going to a UFO conference, I would have just been like, forget about it. And I'm not the president with that kind of a jam-packed life. So, again, I think that it's always very important to maintain a sense of perspective about this in terms of the fact that anybody in a, in a position of incredible responsibility and stress, like the president of the United States, this is just not, it, it's not a priority. And I, and, I, and I think that's probably always been true. We've got an interesting show, kind of a fascinating guest, Robert Kiviet, who has been brought mm -hmm. over to us courtesy of Don Ecker. And we'll find out what he's got. And by the way, Robert was the writer-producer of the Alien Autopsy Fact oh, or Fiction TV show. <laughs> so I don't know if he wants to live that down publicly right now, but we'll ask well, him will. about it and other stuff coming up next. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY. That's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days. But the real question is, how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. This is James Carrion, International Director of the Mutual UFO Network. You are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. 
So, Don Ecker, you brought us a guest. Yes, Mr. Bob Kiviet, Jane uh, and David. Bob and I go back, actually, to the very early 1990s. Uh, at that time, Bob was uh, first working for Cosgrove Muir. Then he uh, was on Encounters, a producer there. And over the years, uh, actually, I collaborated with Bob on a number of stories that made it to TV. But the one I think we've heard so much about originally, of course, Bob was producer-writer for something called The Alien Autopsy Fact or Fiction. Now, Specifically, Don, how did you get involved in that one with Bob? Well, in 1993, my wife, Vicki, and I um, were featured speakers at the first World UFO Congress in Vienna, Austria. And we flew over there, and we ended up uh, spending quite a bit of time with some British colleagues. John Spencer and his wife, Anne, Philip Mantle, and his brand-new wife, Susan, and a number of other folks. And at any rate, near the end of the conference, one morning I was having coffee with Mantle out in a foyer, and uh, he kind of leaned forward and he whispered to me, and he said, Hey, have you heard anything about Steven Spielberg supposedly having a, a bit of footage from the actual UFO crash at Roswell that shows some dead aliens, or words to that effect. And I hadn't. And uh, quite frankly, at the time, I didn't know what Mantle was talking about. So after I got back to the States later, he gave me a call and said that he had heard that Rupert Murdoch, who of course is the huge kahuna of the Fox uh, network, had secured this footage. Could I find out about it? Well, I knew a number of producers over at Fox, and one that I had worked with on a number of stories was Bob Kiviet. And I called Bob up, and I said, Bob, I said, this is what I just heard uh, from the U.K. Hey, what, what's the story? Do you know anything about it? And he said, well, no, not really. He said, but let me do some checking, and I'll get back to you. And it really started at that point, the entire alien autopsy thing. All right, so that's where it started. Now, Bob, how did you get involved in this very unusual subject? Was it Don who totally brought you into it? Did you have a prior interest? Well, I, I don't want to be in any way in, in, in dissonance with Don, but I want that's you to okay. be... That's okay. That's okay. That's perfectly I want, you, I, want you to be, I want you to be able to edit this together, and it's pretty, pretty damn close to what Don said. The story is a pretty simple one for me. I have never, ever, ever not woken up in the morning, probably going on probably back to 1991 or 1992, when I decided that I would cover unexplained phenomena and UFOs especially for the public, because it, it was a dearth of reporting. There was almost none, and it was almost like the UFO subject was only something that, unexplained phenomena in general, but definitely UFOs, which is such a hot button with our culture, as we've noticed most recently with this uh, Norway event uh, that happened, which these things happen invariably, and, and you see how much people are interested in the idea of evidence of that we're, we're not alone and there might be aliens or UFOs. So I always felt this was a huge thing. So there isn't a time I don't wake up in the morning and always check the news wires. I mean, every day going back to 1992, whether I'm, whether I'm in production or not, 
I am always looking at the cases that are happening, whether it be daily, weekly, or whatever. This particular story crossed my desk just like every other story I've ever touched. It was no different. I got a phone call from a UFO researcher that was not done. And this was not the beginning of the story of the alien autopsy. It was the beginning of my knowledge of the alien autopsy. So you can work all this out if you want to recut this or if you need to. But the bottom line is that I did not know anything about the alien autopsy. I was sitting in my office at Encounters on Fox. This is in 1994. We're talking just about, I'm um, thinking about late December. Actually, no, it was more like uh, uh, December, November of 1994. Encounters was winding down. There was a clear indication that it was probably not going to be renewed. It had been a good run, and it was a replacement for sightings because Fox gave up sightings and was willing to replace it with another similar show. And they wanted to, they brought me in to sort of bring some credibility to that. They got me from Unsolved Mysteries. Now, keeping in mind that, you know, I don't want to go into all diatribe about my career, I want to make sure we understand each other that this was just one story that I had seen, and I looked at it like, hmm, a UFO researcher had called me up and said, did you see the news out of England? And I said, no, I had not. Well, there were rumblings, there's comments, there's whatever, that someone has footage of an alien autopsy, some kind of Roswell film. And I said, you mean real footage? Yeah, that's what someone's saying. I said, well, I'm going to look into that. And it just so happened that I used to work for Omni Magazine. And I wrote a cover article for Omni Magazine about what's called the face on Mars. And the face on Mars, as I'm sure most everybody of your listeners know, is this mesa uh, in an area of Mars called Sidonia, which might well be some kind of an artificial construction, some kind of a, a sphinx-like face looking up from the planet, positioned very strangely near these pyramidal structures that could be natural, but... My suspicions are there's probably something more to it. So I wrote this major article. I got all of NASA to talk about it and all that stuff. It really was my foray into television one way or another. It took me two years to write it from 1990, actually three years to write it, from 1991 to 1994. So I had just completed the revised version to send this article into the magazine, and they published it in 1994. And so we're talking 1994. So I had heard a rumor that Steven Spielberg was interested in something like this, but I never pursued it. It might have been Don who mentioned it first. Other people maybe mentioned it. But there was this rumor circulating around. And sure enough, in November, I get a phone, uh, actually just about that time, I was in contact with Omni Magazine's editor, the one I had worked with. And I said, are you aware of this story? And she said, yeah, we're doing a story on it in the November issue. I said, really? Whoa. Really? So I ran to the newsstand. They didn't have any of November. It was at the cusp of the November-December issue. And I got a hold of a copy of that, of that, just the issue that had just passed. And sure enough, there was an article of Steven Spielberg was looking into doing a thing called Project X. And anybody can go to their, I guess, you know, Microfish or whatever today's version of that is, of Omni Magazine, September 1994, and we'll see this article, basically. I, I think it might have been, no, I'm sorry, November 1994, I'm pretty sure. And you'll see Steven Spielberg's article there talking about 
this alien autopsy film of strangely, like as if Steven might have gotten hold of a real footage package of, of the alien uh, being seen at Roswell or more than one alien. And it was very intriguing that Spielberg was 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 asked this question, you know, and apparently Amblin Entertainment, his company here in Los Angeles, uh, did not know anything about it and claimed there was no truth to it. And that was Omni Magazine's version of saying, hey, listen, we looked into this story. It was a rumor mill story, and there was nothing to it. So I asked my editor, is there anything else that uh, you could tell me about it? And she says, well, Bob, you're in television. You know, you, you work for us, too. But, you know, if anybody would know how to get into that, you could. Let us know. <laughs> so they were like, they were a little bit um, suspicious that there seemed to be something to this because the rumor was so, so, so wide. So I guess what we're really saying is Don heard about this from Philip Mantle, who is a UFO researcher that jumped onto the story in England at the same time I kind of did, a little before me. He was a precursor to me getting involved. But before that, just to keep it clear, and Don will correct me if I'm wrong, well more than a year before this, Don was sitting with Philip and his wife, and they were talking about the rights holder, Ray Santilli, who eventually came out with this footage, had been telling people he came up with this footage. And Philip Mantle was one of the people that he told. And then Philip went and told Don and Vicky. So that is an indication. If you know the history of the alien autopsy show I did at Fox and the shows I did at Fox, including a show called World's Greatest Hoaxes, Secrets Finally Revealed, where we exposed most of the autopsy fraud finally, basically... The beginnings were that this guy, Ray Santilli, before he ever leaked it to the public, before he ever concocted the Steven Spielberg story, which he did, by the way, he concocted that and sold that to the media as sort of a, um, a sales pitch to get the public all interested. It's a fascinating story that we can get into, but to keep Don's story clear, yes, he heard about it before anybody else did, from Philip Mantle, who was leaked the story from Santilli before Santilli created the footage. It was like Ray was kind of like teasing the marketplace to see who'd be interested. And Philip was his tease-like ploy. And he, he figured that if he would tell Philip, Philip would tell other UFO researchers like Don, and before you know it, there'd be a groundswell of interest. And you got to give this guy a lot of credit. So let's line it up. He starts out in 1993, we know this retroactively now, he starts out in 93 telling people that he's got this film and he doesn't know what to do with it and he's researching, he doesn't know what to do and he might be able to come up with it and show people this thing and he tells Philip Mantle that. So Philip comes and tells his American counterparts here in America about it. And, you know, they start thinking about it, too. The next thing you know, uh, Ray Santilli hires a company to create the film, basically. A group of people. He puts a group together to create the film. He does a couple of fits and starts we can get into if you want. But finally comes up with a real film. And all along, the one, the big one we all know is the alien autopsy. And it's ironic because as you break down the fraud, you realize the mastermind behind this whole thing is a very savvy marketer of rare Elvis Presley type of memorabilia. Well, maybe so Elvis he, Presley was an alien. 
But ironically, listen, it's an interesting thing because Ray knew how to sell the mysterious material of Elvis Presley and all that stuff because, you know, people thought he might be alive, maybe he's not. He always played that game and he knew how to use the marketplace. So apparently, back to the Spielberg story, and I, I'm sure if Ray was on the phone with us or the, or the line right now, he probably would say, no, Bob, you have it wrong, but pretty close to this that he got a media a PR company to put out the idea that there was a Spielberg involved in his film. And in reality, there was a Spielberg involved, but it wasn't Steven Spielberg. It was a German named Volker Spielberg, who had literally been in his company with Ray selling the Elvis Presley material. So go figure. How did the media get bamboozled so easily, before I got involved anyway, to put Steven Spielberg's name next to his film that he was creating? It wasn't even finished yet. Well, well. It's amazing. No, actually, to me, it's not that amazing. It's total lack of due diligence. On the media, yes. Which brings up, begs the question, did anybody credible actually try to analyze this so-called autopsy footage to determine provenance. Was there any real attempt to do that? Or was oh, it yeah, sure. I, as a matter of fact, I called Kodak because we had information about the film leader on the, the stock, uh, right. yeah. stock yeah. film. I talked personally to Santilli a couple of times. And incidentally, this is a great place to uh, state that Santilli lied through his goddamn teeth to me. Uh, if we would have been face to face, he would have been a face to face liar. <laughs> Later, when I when I you know I discovered that, uh, it was infuriating because UFO magazine. We jumped on on this story after uh, Bob went to England and saw the footage that Santilli was releasing to the world public at that time, and came back. We we of course didn't know if there was anything here or not. But, you know, it was hard to believe that this guy with a high public profile that Santilli had at that point would be such a blatant goddamn liar. And he was. I mean, it was it was amazing. Mm. All right. Would you agree with that, Bob? Well, you know, Don, I'm going to be really candid, okay? The story that we're describing now was a very well-planned media event by Santilli. No one ever. Dis- a disinformation campaign. No, 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 no. But listen, no one ever can dispute the fact. No one. And I'm personally so involved in it that I could write a thesis on this. He handled it so interestingly because the film existed. He knew that. And he knew that if ever anybody saw the brightly lit scene of the alien autopsy, it would be it would be intriguing. He knew it because he had it already done by the time he met with me. He already pretty much had it kind of like in the works, so to speak. He knew what it was going to look like. He had done a couple of fits and starts before that, which really didn't look so great. And ironically, he used that film, too. I don't know why he did. Probably should have never done that. It would have been better for his fraud. But more than anything, I got to tell you guys that he really kept it kind of like close to his vest. It pulled people in. He pulled me in. He pulled Fox in. He pulled many networks in. And once I showed it to all the networks, because he let me have the exclusive window to show it to everybody, every single network that saw it, and there were six networks that saw it, there wasn't one person in that room who didn't believe it was going to be very, very intriguing to the public. Nobody. Intriguing as in profitable. 
No, I don't want people to put a jaundiced eye on this. Why? At the time, because at the time, all you got to do is go back to all my appearances on Entertainment Tonight, and I got all the. You can see the public interest to find out if it was real or not. That was the issue. Let's find out if it's real or not. That was the only goal that I had to to find out if it's real or not. Now. Some people might say, like you got back to the provenance issue, and you got back, more importantly, you got back to the dating or the or the or the testing or the mm-hmm. or the credibility issue, right. the forensics, if you will. Everybody, of course, said we want to see the original film. We want to see the sprockets on the side. We want to do all that stuff. We want to see if it's actually 1947 film. They were savvy enough, these individuals behind the fraud, to take an actual 19th or a reel of film to first Kodak in Europe. Kodak in Europe wrote a letter, which I had a copy of, which said it does look like it could well be from 1947. Written on Kodak stationery. I called the Kodak individual in Europe. He confirmed it. He said, I did see edge code that looked like a square and a triangle. It does look like it could come from 1947 or 1967. So I had that in my Billowack when I came to L.A., back to L.A. From, with the film, and showed it to everyone here in Los Angeles, all the, all the uh, you know, TV companies. We knew Kodak was willing to say at least that they had seen edge code on this film, this very film, not a different film, this film. And that this film had 1927, something like that dating on the film. Now, that was good enough for me to call Kodak here in Los Angeles and say, if we do the show, will you give us your opinion here in Los Angeles, what it looks like to you? And they said, absolutely, we will. I'll tell you what, so- we'll get into that in a moment. Hey, neighbors. The old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Robert Kiviet, a writer and producer. We're talking about the alien autopsy fact for fiction TV show and how it came to be. We have Don Ecker, former, present, and future UFO researcher, actually retired UFO researcher who never quite turned in his papers. Is that fair, Don? No. You think you're out, they pull you back in. Okay, Bob, short and long of it, because we have so many things to cut into here. Having brought this film to the U.S., you come up with this 
project, the Alien Autopsy TV show. How did it end up? Part of the deal with uh, every other network was they were concerned about this backfiring and, you know, looking like, well, we think it might be an intriguing film of an alien, but oh, shucks, maybe it'll turn out not to be one. Every other network felt there had to be some conclusion before we started the show. And I told Mike at Fox, the, the development guy there, the executive, and his boss, Bob, I said, look, guys, our goal is to investigate it on camera. That's our job. The job is to show people how you can investigate a case like this, who you're going to turn to. That's all. It's not like we're going to go and say we concluded it's real and then do a show about it. We're going to do like any other investigating arm of Dateline 2020. Anybody else is going to do the same thing we would do. If they came across this film and had a chance to show it to the public, you can better believe they would do an investigation as, their, as an hour show, whatever they would do. So we said, okay, we'll do the same. Fox was the only one who agreed that was a good way to go. Everybody else felt I had to prove it was real before we did a show. And I said, no, the show is going to be the unraveling of it, figuring it out. So our host, Jonathan Frakes, said throughout the show, the first episode, we did three episodes. The first episode, Jonathan Frakes kept saying over and over again, till we know more, you'll have to decide. Kodak was saying could easily be that from 1947. They saw Edge Code. They saw what appeared to be an actual film from 1947, 27, or 67, which was pretty intriguing, right? But the story gets much more complicated. We did this uh, first big show. It was a huge hit. Fox asked me to make a second show showing more of the footage. And as we showed more of the footage... And Stan Winston, the late Stan Winston, who died, you know, sadly recently, I mean, he was a great interview for us because he told everybody how what a great special effect this would be if it was special, if it was an effect, if it was created by some filmmaker. And he said he would want to hire whoever made it like that, he said, with the snap of his finger in our show. But by the time the second show aired, we realized that Stan was having a problem with some of the kind of uh, not such great looking footage, such as when the doctors were sticking their hands inside the body of this creature and pulling out the innards, if you will, there was some doubt whether that looked like real flesh or any kind of a, you know, animate object, any kind of a being. He felt it looked a little bit like, you know, meat or just didn't look right. It looked like, you know, not something he could say was a body. He's not a doctor, but he didn't think that looked so great. So overall, um, it started to get a little bit dicey. By the third airing, when we showed people what these uh, metal inside the ship looked like, these uh, hand-printed uh, sort of panel like, thing, know, they look ridiculous. Panels. Yeah, it was getting to the point now where Fox and I were saying, okay, we've shown a one-hour show stretched out to three hours with everything we had at the time except something called the tent footage. I wanted to show the tent footage to show the public that we that Santilli had created a bit of a mistake. He had shown people earlier footage that he presented like as a fake as an autopsy in a tent that maybe Harry Truman had come into before the aliens were removed from Roswell. And like Harry Truman comes in in a trench coat and you just see the back of this guy. And it was so ridiculous. I thought that was the, uh, that was the real problem with this story, that Santilli had overdone it. He didn't realize he went one step too far. He threw too much evidence into the, tra into the chain and we were gonna eventually find out who those people were in the scene because you could see faces. You could see people for once. It wasn't like the other footage where you didn't see any human beings, any faces. This you could see. So we actually were able to uh, bring that footage to NASA. 
we were able to get the face enhanced. We felt confident that once we show the face of one of these doctors, the doctors would not be from 1947, but probably would be from 1995. And sure enough, we found the individual. His name was Elliot Willis. He was one of the doctors in this scene known as the tent footage. But we weren't able to show that until we had a show called World's Greatest Hoaxes. Secrets finally revealed because uh, Santilli threatened to sue me and Fox if we aired the tent footage. He really had no leg to stand on. But I think Fox just felt, you know what, you know, we'll do it some other time. And sure enough, they gave me the rights to do the World's Greatest Hoaxes show. The rights, the okay to do it. And in the world's greatest hoaxes show, I had to indemnify them. They were so worried about whether or not Santilli and anybody else we were exposing in that, like the famous Bigfoot film, those the Patterson film, or other things in that one show besides the alien autopsy. But they were also worried about the alien autopsy. And so basically, you know, I'm living this out because I'm proud of this fact. I always felt I was working for Rupert Murdoch. Now you could say what you want about Rupert Murdoch, but he's a newsman. And the one thing I would always guarantee my boss, the newsman boss, Rupert, there's not going to be anything I leave unturned or any stone unturned on my watch. Well, well wait a minute, wait a minute. He's a businessman. He's a newsman. That's news well, to me. He's no, a businessman. Uh, you, you need to do your homework, okay? Rupert Murdoch yeah. is well known for creating tabloid. Uh, newspapers to their pinnacle of success in the biggest market in the world, known as New York. You need to do your homework. Tabloid. Number two, no, yeah, no offense. Yeah. You need to really do your homework. Number two, I came to Murdoch knowing, knowing that the alien autopsy was a sensational story, and that his executives probably would love it. It's a no-brainer. All you got to do is go right now to the Sun in England. They're doing more UFO stories on a weekly basis than anybody. But that's not so much Murdoch in any way. It's the British tabloid mentality, which he helped a pioneer in England and Australia before that, and in New right. York, and in right. our country. And when you look at tabloid television, you can never forget a current affair launched everything we see now as reality television. In but, many ways. Yeah, I understand all of this, but you're basically... So what did you, so you just say then? You said you made a laugh, yeah. a laugh like Murdoch was right. news. Yeah, you're, because some of us don't think of the tabloids as news. We think of the tabloids as entertainment exclusively, not news. Let, let me burst your bubble, okay? That's a very provincial, nice little kind of category you like to, a lot of people like to do, like to categorize their information. They like to say, well, you know, I read that in the New York Times. So that's a little more believable than if I read it in the Weekly World News. Obviously, that's a paper that's out of business. It was a joke. I'll agree. But if you say, I read this in the New York Times, and I also read it in the New York Post, which is Rupert's paper in New York, you know, headless woman found on the you know, famous stories about, you know, on the cover of that newspaper. You would not take it less lightly in the New York Post, even though it's a more tabloidy kind of paper than you would in the New York Times. And it's kind of evolved over the last 20 years where you can say unequivocally the New York Times might do a story as easily on the front page 
that the New York Post did on the front page as tawdry and as, you know, sensational as the other. No one's better than the other. The writing might be a little more, you know, official and sounding a little bit more, you know, uh, journalistic in one, but the story is still the exact same story. So we have looked at an evolution. It's the exact same story. It's an evolution. Absolutely. I'll give you about 50 examples if you need it. So the, Please. Uh, how many can I go through in the last five years? Every single tabloid story about a celebrity, about a Michael Jackson, uh, you name it, has appeared in the front page of the New York Times as much as appeared in the tabloid I'm describing. So what occurs now in our culture is it ushers in, and I'll agree with you here, no accountability by the media. Now, you don't know where you're going to get your information from more credibly than the other. It might be on a good morning show in the news. It might be on a cable talk show. The, journal, the, the uh, public has to be very, a very good consumer now. They have to look very carefully at the content. They have to look very careful at the media outlet. They have to look carefully at the advertisers involved. And they have to say to themselves, is this news... Is this entertainmentized news? And where's the truth? So going back to the alien autopsy, which inspired this conversation, I did absolutely nothing different, nothing, than any journalist would do at any one of these uh, organizations, whether it's a New York Post, New York Times, or wherever else, analyzing what we know right now, tell the public what we know right now, with a limited or no budget, I'm going to continue on the story anyway and try to get to the bottom of this cabal, if it's a cabal. Finally, when I had enough information to actually tell the public what I thought the, the story was, I went public. It's very easy for people to say, oh, yes, I knew it was a fraud back in 1994 and 5. Nobody knew that. We only suspected... Oh, of course, this could be a special effect. And if you watch my show, the initial broadcast, we covered every angle. <laughs> every single angle from the pathology to special effects to the history of, of UFOs in Roswell. We didn't leave any stone unturned. But I respect the fact that people want to take shots at it and stuff. I'm flattered in a way because it was one of the toughest stories you could ever do. And Fox said, Bob, you got eight weeks to do it. We're going to air it no matter what we got. Even if we expose it as a fraud, we're going to go public in one of our news outlets and we're going to do like a one-hour special and feed it all around to our news outlets. So we won't do it in we won't do it on the Fox Network, but we'll do it at our local news outlets all over the country. Bob, let me jump in here for just a second. I know there are going to be a lot of people that have a lot of questions about the alien autopsy. Several years ago, I got together with Bob and did a three-part series in UFO magazine, giving the complete inside story of what happened during that time period. What I ended up doing was putting all this in a PDF file, and I just made a sticky in the Dark Matters radio forum called The Inside Story of the Alien Autopsy. Now, okay, ladies and gentlemen, just to let everybody know, we have a Dark Matters forum at the Powercast forum, which is the powercast.com slash forum. If you go to the Dark Matters forum, you'll find, number one, of course, recordings of many of Don Ecker's radio shows and also the document he's talking about now. Right. I just put it up there so anybody that has a, a real interest in finding out what Bob had to say, what uh, at that time the executive in charge that Bob was working for, 
Rupert Murdoch, all the various personalities, and the inside story. It's all there, and it's well worth reading, in my opinion. And that's I'll, it. I'll tell you what. At this point, you know, we have that particular show. Let's move past it, because that is the past, and we want to get into the future. But first... Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Bob Kiviet is here with Don Ecker. We're talking about some of the stuff he's done in the past, but now you're working on some new stuff. You've come across some information regarding the moon. Well, you know, it's, it's again, it's an interesting segue. And I know just for the interest in the interest of all the listeners and all that, that you want to have consistency and, and, and follow through. But it's a very interesting little connection here. The same way that we looked at the alien autopsy, Don came to me well over 10 years ago, that would be maybe 15, almost 14 years ago. And he said to me, I think there's a lot of evidence on the moon we need to look at. There's evidence in space, astronaut UFO sightings we need to look at. And I said, Don, I'm aware of several of these stories, but there's not a lot of video. There's not a lot of photographs. There's not a lot of information. It's just like a lot of stories. And by, by, by no means have I been lightly looking into this. I've been looking into it for a very long time. And Don says, Bob, I can show you a lot of fascinating things. And Don did. And I knew about some other things, so we put it all together. And I did a couple of segments on astronaut UFO encounters for the show Encounters on Fox in 94. And then when I brought my own show to bear with the alien autopsy, a lot of the same ideas are kind of, kind of ringing true. The idea is what's rumor, what's not, what's photographable and what's real and what's not. And the moon, was, the moon was one of those things where there was like four or five photographs that looked intriguing, maybe, that there might be some constructions on the moon that were not left there by us. And it could well be that it's a book written many years ago, and Don's a big fan of the book. And I was less of a fan because I felt the photographs were really hard to even see. The book was called Somebody Else's on the Moon by George Leonard. And I, and I really didn't think it was that great a book, to be honest with you, uh, when Don first brought it up to me, because the photographs were lousy. You couldn't see anything in the book. The uh, printing was terrible. It was a small little paperback and tiny. The thing was like, you know, the small, you know, really small book. And, you know, maybe in a hardcover book or whatever, the, the pictures might be better, you know, resolution, but I couldn't see anything. But I did see a couple of things, obviously. There was these little uh, objects that seemed to be leaving trails in the moon's surface. And there was a, a couple of other shots that looked like it could well be what George was saying in the book that looked like constructions 
maybe linking, linking to some kind of thermal energy uh, complex on the planet. He had a picture on the cover, which is fascinating, which Don let me have a copy of. He sent me one because I remember seeing this years ago as a kid growing up and, uh, you know, college age. And I remember seeing the cover of the book and the cover of the book said everything. The cover of the book had these astronauts on the, on the um, surface of the moon and they were looking at these like pipes coming out of these craters like pipes were left there by some race not us of course so you know basically that got me going you know are there pipes on the moon is there a is there a compass in the moon and now of course the inside writing of the book professed all of this that there were photographs and if you look at these photographs you will see this and all but when you finally look at the photographs you don't see it even if you squint outside of a few images like the little objects the big objects leaving the tracks in the moon a few other things we'll get into but overall dawn lit my fire up and i started looking into some of the astronaut sightings more carefully and then i went and interviewed largely largely to some of dawn's in pushing me a little bit I went to interview a guy named Maurice Chatelain. Now, Maurice Chatelain was a French aerospace engineer who developed the, and is credited in many ways, for developing the lunar module communication system used on, in Apollo 11. So he went public in 1978 or 9 or so. Actually, no, I'm going to take that back. He went public in like the mid-70s, 75, 76. And he said that there was a two-minute gap literally, during the lunar landing of Apollo 11, where the astronauts were literally uh, telling Houston they see these enormous craft on, the, on a crater edge, rim, above them, and they were a little scared, and they wanted to know who they were and what they were, and they were huge, and they told Houston this, and then Houston said pretty much, go about your business, continue the moonwalk, and uh, don't look at those guys, basically. You know, basically ignore them. Uh, ignore that whole thing. And uh, Maurice said that everybody at NASA knew this. Now, no one ever interviewed Maurice Chatelain. I found, you know, on television I, that I was aware of or film. I never knew what the guy even looked like. I called up a few people. I found him. I took John Marshall, the host of our show, Encounters. He never did a sit-down interview with anybody as I'm, that I'm aware of. This is one that he wanted to do. Sitting down, imagine, our host of our encounters, you know, phenomena entertainment show, there is our host sitting down with Maurice Chatelain in his living room in San Diego, telling, you know, our host, Maurice Chatelain, in broken French, all about what he saw and heard, that he knew for a fact that in the communication system that he built, that Neil Armstrong was communicating to Houston, there were aliens on the moon, and who the hell are these guys, and all of that. I took that, we put it on the air at Fox in 94. Maurice Chatelain was not the greatest interview because he, had, he was old, he had a teeth problem, he didn't want to take off this one shirt that we asked him to take off. It was like a, a typical like, you know, tourist shirt from like Hawaii. He wanted him to look like this great NASA scientist he had been, right? But he wanted to wear what he wanted to wear, and his son tried to help us. But overall, the father was pretty stubborn, and he wanted to wear what he wanted to wear. Even though the interview was broken French, and it wasn't my favorite interview of all time I ever produced and all that, I have to tell you that what he said should be legendary to people. It, people should recognize, here's the guy, has every reason to know what was going on. And he also wrote about a lot of astronaut UFO encounters beyond this. So he really was letting the tipping his hand in the mid-70s after he left NASA, that just after the Apollo missions were over, 
that the alien issue was not even a debate, that the UFOs seen coming and going along with the astronauts to the moon and back, astronauts seeing structures and things and ships on the moon, proof, positive, as far as he was concerned. But most people needed evidence. And I kept telling Don, even after this Maurice Chatelain interview that I was proud of, in fact, the Japanese called me up over the last few years and asked me, could they air that? And I looked into finding the actual master tape. And one of the guys I used to work with years ago is telling me he doesn't think they exist anymore, which I'm really mad about. Now, I may have a copy of it somewhere, and I'll show people anything they want. But the bottom line is that that got me going. But still, not a lot of photographs. And then Don was able to start to get more photographs, and it took a while. And Don, why don't you tell your story about how you got more photographs going? Well, when I was doing UFOs tonight, my producer, Jeff Floral, introduced me to a fellow that uh, had a very strong interest in advanced physics quantum theory and what have you. Uh, this guy had been an executive with Bank of America, and uh, one of his sons actually worked with Jeff in his day job. So this guy started coming down to the studio when I was broadcasting, and we became pretty good friends. His name was Bill Nelson, and Bill got me interested in ham radio. And as a, a result, I ended up getting a ham radio license back in 1995. But during this period of time, Bill had a series of, of friends in various disciplines all around not only California but the United States. And one of his ham radio buddies worked over at JPL. So I had done, completed uh, several shows on lunar phenomena. And that was something that I talked about quite frequently, uh, having had a, a very strong interest in researching LTP or lunar trans phenomena. And uh, some of the shows that I ended up doing, as a matter of fact, now are up on the Dark Matters Forum on the Paracast. But at any rate, one night Bill gave me a call and said, hey, he said, I have something up here at my house I'd like you to come up and take a look at. And he was very mysterious. He really didn't go into it on the phone. And uh, finally, I said, okay, sure, Bill, I'll, I'll be up tomorrow. I ended up going up there, and Bill had been sick, and I had uh, actually been kind of concerned about him. But he was feeling a little bit better. And I walked into his home office, and he had a stack of lunar photographs sitting on the edge of his desk. And I saw those there, and I said, Bill, where in the hell did you get those? And he said, uh, oh, he said, uh, one of my contacts over at JPL, they, got, they pulled them out of the lunar bin. He said, but I've got to give them back to him because uh, they didn't know that he had borrowed them. And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm scanning them. So I sat down with him and started going through these. And there were several in there that absolutely took my breath away. And one of these photos, which I consider to be the absolute most startling photograph I ever saw in my life, I ended up taking over to Bob. And I'll never forget when we had met, Bob had uh, been on some job or something. We had met very briefly at this bar restaurant in order to have uh, some dinner. And I had taken over a folder with several photographs in it, and I pulled this one out. And when he first saw it, I don't really think it struck a chord with Bob. You know, once again, correct me if, if I'm not, if I'm mistaken, but it wasn't until later that you really began to, uh, to recognize 
what this photograph may portend. And it was then that I gave Bob a copy of a radio show that I had conducted in November of 1995 with a former petrochemical engineer by the name of Vito Sicari, which is once again up on the Dark Matters Forum. And Bob listened to this interview, and suddenly I think it all came together for him at that point. Would that be pretty much on the money, Bob? There's two main things, and they're very simple things. Uh, he showed me the photograph, which was a glossy image or a really nice-looking image, and it was a big image. It wasn't like like that book George Leonard had, pre had presented the world where the pictures are very, very impossible to make out. Here was a clear, sharp, orbital photo looking straight down at the surface of the moon. And remember from my Face on Mars research and work up for Omni Magazine as a science journalist. Uh, and again, yes, I'll say it again. I'm the same guy who did Alien Autopsy and right, I'm a science journalist. That's right. <laughs> I want people to understand that these are very, very interesting concepts. You know, what's a science journalist? Well, someone who knows the science as well as the astronauts or people he's interviewing well enough to interview them or NASA people about what they're doing with orbital cameras. When you interview people, as you guys know, you have to be as good on the topic and as knowledgeable as the person you're interviewing. Otherwise, the interview, interview will be lousy. So I had to learn so much about orbital photographs, orbital cameras. I always had an interest in this anyway. So I became sort of like tutored on orbital photography by NASA imaging experts because of the work I did on the face on Mars, which really helped me with all the UFO type of programming I've done and other mysteries caught on tape. So my whole issue really is I looked at a photograph Don had and I went, okay, finally, an orbital photo pointing straight down, sharp resolution, clear as a bell. Well, the only thing Don had to point me to is what crater to look at. And once he pointed what crater to look at, pointed out, and then showed what appeared to be a pipe, a huge pipe going through that crater, from one end to the other, going through the crater wall, disappearing, and then about maybe, I'm going to guess, three to five miles roughly, maybe more. I can't really tell scale. We haven't analyzed that heavily yet. I guess we're looking at some sort of a protrusion sticking straight up, uh, going straight up to the sky, some kind of a vent. Imagine a pole of some kind with a vent of some kind, maybe a funnel on top of it, pointing straight up, linearly right along the exact same linear line of where that pipe was pointing. So all you have to do is draw like a line with a ruler straight from where the pipe went into the crater and stuck into the wall. And you draw a straight line with a straight edge, and there's this like weird, you know, I don't know what to call it really. I would just call it some sort of a funnel on a pole sticking straight up. But we're probably talking something about 500 to 800 feet, maybe, uh, maybe a few hundred feet tall. God knows how thick. By the way, that pipe we're talking about going through the crater, my expert at NASA said if it is indeed a pipe, it probably is in the neighborhood of something like a half a mile or maybe a mile, depending on what, how, how big that crater is. Maybe it'd be a quarter mile, half a mile, we really don't know. But it's thick. It might be like a tunnel, like it might be like the Lincoln Tunnel if you're in New York or the Holland Tunnel. So we're not talking about just like a little pipe sticking out for, for like a water, you know, like a, po like a hose. We're talking about some kind of a, like a tunnel that you – would visually see as a pipe from high up. And that got my interest. So Don said, why don't you take it to your NASA guys? And I did. 
And I told him it was a JPL photo initially. Got Frank came from the JPL. So my JPL sources looked at it. And this one guy said, Bob, I think it's there. I do. I also think it disappears a little bit because I found five of the photographs in the same area. At different angles, it seems to disappear a bit. But I still think it's there. I don't think it's a scratch in the film. I can't say it's a pipe like you're saying, but it definitely is intriguing. And I want to spend more time with it if I could. But he recommended that we go and get these five of the photographs and make like a movie. So you could see if you circle around this thing, that it does seem to lose a little bit of its dimension if you go around it. But otherwise, it does look like a pipe. And the question is, what's that other thing, like this funnel with, a, with whatever exhaust, if you will, a few miles away? So bottom line, these things don't belong on the moon, guys. They don't belong there if that's what they are. So that's Okay, well, you're raising the question here, Bob, if that's what they are. And I have worries about it, and we'll go into it in a moment as we get into more of the evidence. I guess one of the worries is that if all this stuff is going on the moon, well, we land on the moon in 1969, have a few more voyages, and then we pretty much forget about it until they had that thing crash on the moon and find the water. So if all this is going on on the moon, why haven't we done more to find out what's really happening? Well, I, I heard years ago a rumor. You were around, Gene, back in the 60s. I was around forever. I wrote the very first song. Right. You, okay. You were Mel Gibson. I mean, Mel, Mel, not Mel Gibson, Mel, uh, you know, Mel, the comedian. He was a 2,000-year-old man. What's his name? Mel Brooks. Mel, Mel, Mel Brooks. But you were around, and you remember what was going on then with this multi-billion dollar race to the moon with the Russians. You remember Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, 2001, and all the things that were being inferred that we could look forward to. We were going to the moon. We were going to put bases up there. We were going to perhaps colonize the moon. They were talking about putting industry up there and making new metals and what have you and reduced gravity environments. And suddenly, after a half dozen shots to the moon and uh, maybe what 10 or 12 astronauts walking on the surface suddenly we cut it off that was it end of story and it was the end of the story until the mid 70s when we started putting stuff in orbit around the the planet the rumor was especially in light of what neil armstrong is alleged to have witnessed when they touched down with apollo 11 that somebody told us to get the hell off the moon that is the rumor there's a little bit of a problem with that don and i know that that's that's if we had more time we could really get into it but the question i just want to add and it's fascinating what don's saying really let's say for a minute that we went to the moon and we were scared off the freaking moon let's just say that that Neil Armstrong came back, and by the way, Neil Armstrong has never been the same. If anybody checks out Neil Armstrong's personality from the moment he got back from the moon, there's a study there that someone should have done a long time ago, and I have no idea why no one has. We'll see about that. But in the meantime, why would it be that we stopped going to the moon in the 70s like we did and then never got near the moon again until fairly recently and when we did go back to the moon the biggest foray was the clementine mission to begin with which was a secret military mission of about re-photographing the freaking moon why why are we doing that okay then on the other hand everyone says well the moon's not interesting to the public i don't know about that there's an entire generation i'm one of them that that got inspired by space mysteries and everything about them by by going to space and the moon i don't know exactly what's going on but i think the big point is could we have gone to the moon been scared off the moon 
and kept that from the public all these years? And then could we be now wimpily kind of going back to the moon because we might finally be ready to deal with the fact that we can't hide that forever, dot, 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 because other countries have their own desires now to go to the moon and they're going to have to be brought into the tent, so to speak, and told, maybe already told, look, when you go to the moon, you're going to see this stuff. We're all going to have to let the world know, just you know, hypothetically laying it out for you guys. We're going to have to let the world know as a, as, a, as a one world kind of like, you know, group here that there are things on the moon. So when you go to the moon, look at these areas. We'll work with you. And at some point, we will all collectively as open countries tell the public that we human beings have discovered there's a presence on the moon. That would be the only likely scenario if indeed what I'm saying to you has happened the way it did, that maybe we finally realize we can't keep a secret forever and it's better to include spacefaring nations that are just beginning to get to the moon themselves. And kind of like our society has sort of evolved now, I think it's pretty clear to most people, guys, maybe the alien autopsy tested it in a way that it did, that if you say to the public, tonight on Fox, is this a real alien? And it turns out it's a real alien? The world is going to be fine the next day, guys. They're going to go to work the next day. They're going to go to church the next day or temple, whatever. So I think we're pretty clear now. The public will deal with it. it or maybe they're be- just so jaded hearing all sorts of sensational stuff that they just accept it. We have Bob Kiviet. We have Don Ecker. We'll have more about the mysteries of the moon on the other side of the Paracast. So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnam. Bob Kiviet, Don Eckert. We first started with talking about the alien autopsy and how that came to be, but now we're focusing on lunar mysteries. And there's something that you wanted to add, Don, about all this. Go ahead, please. Yes, in in uh, connection with with the really the outstanding rundown that Bob just gave. Back when I was first becoming fascinated, interested. In beginning my own investigation into lunar phenomena, one of the people that I was collaborating with is a guy by the name of Jim Sylvan. I ended up doing a couple of shows with Jim, and Jim had been fascinated by this material ever since he read Leonard's book back in the late 1970s, Somebody Else is on the Moon, George Leonard. Jim began his own investigation at that time, had gone to NASA, and had pulled a number of those photographs out that Leonard had referenced in his book. Now, when he discovered that I was fascinated by this, he had some prints made, and he sent them to me. When I first started looking at these, i got to tell you, I was absolutely blown away. And one particular photograph that he pointed to involved the lunar crater, or the area known as Maricrisium. And there are a number of anomalies on this photograph that, quite frankly, are breathtaking. And I'm shocked 
that more people haven't recognized that. But at any rate, Jim had this particular photograph blown up to a huge proportion, almost probably 24, 28 inches long and a couple of feet wide. And he had it mounted on this really beautiful wooden uh, frame. Now, in uh, I believe it was the mid-1980s down in Florida, he had discovered that retired Admiral Shepard, who had been one of the lunar astronauts, was giving a talk or a lecture, and Jim had gone down to see him. And after the lecture was over, he was signing autographs and what have you, and Jim approached him, shook his hand, and told him, you know, uh, how proud he was of what Shepard and the other astronauts had done. And he asked him, would you sign this lunar photograph of mine? So he picked up this big picture, presented it to Shepard. Shepard signed it. And then Jim said, hey, before I go, sir, he said, I have a question to ask. He said, could you tell me what this is? And he pointed to this one anomaly that in the photograph, and I have the picture here, resembles a castle wall. And I mean, it actually looks like a castle wall. And it has a protrusion coming out of it with what appears to be a huge ball on the end of this protrusion. And he said, Shepard looked at this anomaly. He's, and this is what Jim told me. He turned white handed the picture back to Sylvan, and without a word, turned away and took off. Now, Bob, you know what anomaly I'm referring to. Yes. And I'll tell you, this is something that when you recognize what you're looking at, that is something that has every appearance in the universe of being artificial, you got to ask yourself, why haven't more people asked the questions about this? I still find it. I still find it absolutely amazing. Well, you see, back to the issue about about what I think a lot of people speak speak of as spurious images, things that you can't really say or exactly what you you want to believe. Basically, if I look at one thing and I see something on the surface of the moon, someone says oh, that's just a rock formation, and I go, no, 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 look, 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 look carefully at this, carefully. So if you have to make somebody squint and fuss with our eyeballs to that point, most juries of our country, in our judicial system, in our country, I mean, probably would have reasonable doubt if they have to squint that much. So you've got to really find, in my opinion, no offense, Don, but we had to find more impressive images than that, more impressive unequivocal images than even that pipe that we were talking about, that Don found in the JPL photograph. So we really were at a loss. We didn't have enough data to go to the public and say, you see, you see, you see. But we knew there was enough out there to keep us on our toes. But I decided that it was really time to throw this out in front of the American public, whatever we could show. So about two years ago, I approached Don, and Don approached me. We got together, and whatever it was. It was about the moon photograph he showed me at that restaurant. And we said, why don't we develop a show with what we do have today? Let's put it all together, everything. Maurice Chatelain, the French guy I mentioned, the astronauts acting strange. Vito Sicari. Well, I'm going to leave that story out for a minute because, again, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite if I say I need photographs 
to prove things. I need evidence to show the public. And Vito Sicari had zero. Vito Sicari had a wonderful story. Zero evidence. So I didn't know what to make of it other than it was a great story. And we could tell the public what Vito said. And Vito would come on and say what he saw. By the way, have, have you told these nice gentlemen here today, Don, about the Vito Sicari story? Do they know about the story? I'm not sure. Uh, they may or may not. Let, well, let, you know what? Let's do this. Why no, don't tell you tell us the story? Let yeah. me take a shot at it because I know time is short and everybody wants to you know, get right to other points, right? Don came to me and said, point blank, hey, Bob, I got a guy on radio who says he saw not only the lunar pictures everyone's been thinking may exist, but the mother load of all the photographs in an archive showing structures, machines, Earth lunar moving machines, all kinds of alien artifacts that cannot have been left by our astronauts. They had to have been left by some race. This guy's got all this great stuff. He's seen it. He doesn't have it, but he's seen it. And he's going to tell, he told my listeners that, do you want to hear this radio show? So I listened to the radio show, and the first thing I said to Don was, how come you didn't tell me about this earlier? And he goes, well, you know, whatever. Then I listened to it, and I hear him saying, Don, and his listeners, it was he, he put that on the same night my third alien autopsy show was on Fox. So it was like, I wish I would have known that. I would have rather seen listened to that than even watch my own show. It was almost like this guy really had a great story to tell. In 1995, he told Don's radio listeners in no, on November 25th. I can give you the exact date. I know the date now. And it's like it was it was basically you know, hey, he saw the motherload of photographs. He knows it's true. He was never allowed to take the photographs out from the secret NASA place, but he saw these photographs. They exist. They're there. NASA's got all these absolute sharp photographs of these earth-moving, all the things George Leonard was talking about. He even had a copy of the George Leonard book we were just describing with the cover showing these astronauts with the uh, tunnel or, or pipes sticking out of these craters. And he was saying everything that was in this book and more so. There was like an image, let's say, that George had mentioned in his book. They zoom in, and you could see with a, with, a, with, a, with a magnifying glass, maybe some shape that looked a little unnatural. And according to this guy, Vito Sicari, the NASA photographs seemed to have like an, a robotic camera was shooting sharper, sharper, sharper zoom-ins to these objects all over the moon. He was looking at thousands of photographs, not, you know, and if you believe the guy, Vito Sicari, he pressured NASA to show them him and his buddy, a, a, a work associate, every image that George Leonard had in this book, and then some, like he just tipped the iceberg with that one. So NASA, for some reason, according to Sakari, let him see all these photographs, but never take a photograph out, sign waivers and, and, and like, and like you know, representation and warranties that literally he would never, non-disclosure agreement, that he would never tell the public or the media what he saw for fear of losing his, I guess, what, citizenship? I don't know what. They, they threatened that they had a social security number. They had his tax information. They basically told him that if you ever tell people what you saw, we'll bury you, whatever. So why he eventually told Don the story, I don't know. And that's one of those stories that just, you know, motivated me even more to see if NASA had photographs. But uh, we didn't know if there was any proof to those big batches of photographs until last year. And that's really probably what you guys want to get into. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, 
but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code Radio Day, that's Radio Day, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking to Bob Kiviat, and we're also talking with Don Ecker, who is present, former, and current retired UFO investigator. We're speaking about mysteries of the moon. And, of course, folks, you heard about that discovery of water on the moon. But now, Bob, what happened last year to bring you closer to some more mysteries, solutions, or what? Uh, see, I love this part of the story because Don, it shows that Don and I, that we come from different places in the media. He's more of a print guy, and I'm obviously more of a TV guy now. Um, you know, gave up print for reasons that are self, self-evident. It's hard to make a living in print. What print? Um, there is no print. Well, there is some print, but we'll get that some other day. Uh, whatever. Uh, you're right. It's, it's a dying, dying, dying thing. But in the end, um, Don's staying focused on research like me and wanting to make this moon show happen any way we could to show the public what we've got. We stayed on it, and one day Don and I were talking in our usual research, you know, coffee calls we're having, and I say, by the way, have you called that guy Jim, your guy that helped get you into this years ago, get some updates from him, maybe he's got, I don't know, whatever, let's find out where he's coming from. So Don calls this guy up, this old researcher friend of his, and out of nowhere, this guy tells us how we heard about this other source. What source? What do we know? We're like, we're all over it. We didn't see anything. We're all, we're all over the internet, Don and I both, you know, our people, my staff, whatever. He says, you need to check out this guy. He is a guy who is trying to create a study of moon photographs shot by telescopes compared to moon photographs shot by the astronauts. And he fell into the mother load of photographs showing what looked like alien structures on the moon. And I'm like, what? And Don's like, what? And we're like, yeah. And this guy said, you need to check out this guy. He emerged and he's got all these photographs that NASA leaked to him, maybe by accident. Nobody really knows exactly why they gave him all these photographs. Well, what would make sense here? What kind of logical reason? I'm I'm going to tell you the story. I'll let you you guys and Don will chime in. Okay, you tell me what doesn't make sense about this story. In our day and age, we're living in right now. A guy is a graphic artist, graphic expert. He is a savvy one. He really knows his game. Digital images, he teaches it. He's a teacher of it, too. He goes and he asks NASA, the Lunar Planetary Institute, the archives at Arizona's university. These are the main moon archives that we have right now. And he says, I'm doing a study. 
And in this study, I want to compare photographs I'm shooting with my telescope to photographs that the NASA astronaut shot. Will you please send me these particular images? And he starts naming them from the archives that we all can get because it's our archive. There are photographs, the, the nation's photographs. And he starts asking for these photographs. And they start sending him these photographs in JPEG files. And the next thing you know, he's, sending, he's asking for more. And he's saying, by the way, I need a little further down the moon. Maybe you have a plate, one of the, uh, they come in mosaics. You know, the uh, astronaut shot photographs, the orbiters shot photographs. But he starts asking more for the astronaut photographs, the ones the astronauts were holding with these cameras they held in their in their capsule as they went around the moon. They were the Hasselblad. Uh, yeah, right, Don. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. More information that we really want to get into right now. <laughs> yeah, right. They were a certain kind of photograph. They were taken by this camera that NASA gave to the astronauts that have a very wide angle and they create the ability to see things at certain angles that you would not see with other cameras. So basically what happened was this guy started to focus on certain images that looked like there were shapes on the lunar surface that didn't belong there. And he didn't really know much about lunar anomalies at this time, didn't know anything about that. But now it turns out he starts really breaking them down, and he starts asking the Lunar Planetary Institute librarians, very nice ladies up there, hey, could you send me some more of those photographs? Could you send me some more of this particular batch? Can you send me? And they start sending him whatever he asked for. So he starts getting this entire archive of photographs showing all kinds of beautiful wide-angle shots shot by the astronauts at these oblique angles, which really allow for detail and resolution and um, perspective that you don't get at any other angle and any other resolution. And I'm telling you, I believe proof positive. Proof positive. All and right, now that gets to be very complicated, proof positive, okay, because we know I believe, that I believe any that. image, let me say this, Bob, any image, as we know, can be faked very, very convincingly. By who? By any photographic expert, oh, by so people you work with in Hollywood, by film studios. So the question is here, this treasure trove, is it something that shows uh, enough to tell? Not, not getting away with that one either. Let, let me say this right now. Okay. Whether you're doing a new show like I'm doing on UFOs, in development on that, or whether or not you're doing a show about the moon, if you're a courtroom and you're a jury in the United States of America, and a person stands up and says, today, anything can be faked, like an animal house, <clears throat> what we really are saying is, the level of sophistication of our technology has fallen into the hands of everyday people that used to be in the hands of Industrial Light and Magic only, or Hollywood people only, and that would be true. But to take that technology and create a believable scene that includes fake artificial structures on the moon within the Lunar Planetary Institute's own imagery would take, one, a very skilled level, by the way, and I don't know if I know one, because luckily I come from a family who made money in retouching, and photographic retouching in New York, and did it for all the advertising agencies around. So I know about retouching, ironically. And all I can say to you is this. There is not one chance in hell that the photographs found by this individual are photographically manipulated. None. Zero. How much detail are we talking about here? Because I've seen some of these faces on Mars and stuff like that. It looks like a big Rorschach test. Once again, i got to implore you. 
when you talk about a specific mystery, and if you're talking about the face on Mars, when you break it down, it's two photographs shot by a Martian orbiter known as the Viking orbiter. And on two separate passes, the 35th orbit and the 75th orbit, they capture what appears to look like a mile-wide facial-looking structure at those angles and those resolutions. Until you send up an orbiter and you send it to the same exact location around, the, around Mars and shoot it again with sharper images, you're still left with a mystery. Those photographs do look like some kind of facial feature, according to most NASA people. The question is... Which NASA look, people are we talking about here? NASA Goddard, Vince DiPietro, Gregory Molinar. These are people of the highest level of our NASA expertise that really should be credited with discovering the face on Mars in the right way more than anybody. And so when you start going Rorschach test and Herbert, you know, Kermit the Frog and all that stuff, let's just go back to that courtroom's discussion. You take these two photographs into a courtroom in the United States of America today, and you present the face on Mars as a mystery, you will end up with a hung jury. Absolutely. You will not end up, I don't believe, with proof, and you won't end up with people laughing you out on these two photographs. Well, but of course, you see, in a courtroom situation, of course, Bob, you would normally call in expert testimony. You would I just have, said it'll be a hung jury. You'll end up with a hung jury. You'll have you'll have Michael Malin, who shoots all the images from Mars with orbiters right now, or the expert in it. As he told me for the Omni piece, Bob, I think it's a natural structure, but I'm going to do everything I can to prove it one way or the other. And they never really have done that yet, no matter how much they say they have. So when you come back, that's my science journalist opinion. I'll debate that with Michael Malin any day of the week. But the question really is, does the public think there's a structure on Mars that might be artificial? Most people do. You know, my kids watch a show on the Disney Channel, I believe it is. Uh, actually, I make this. I'll make sure I'm right about that. I think it's Disney. And it's called Phineas and Farb. And they do this very amazing scientific. These two kids are like geeks. They can remake anything, you know, happen and drive their sister crazy. And they literally did a send up the other day on the face on Mars. And it's amazing. The entire half hour is about the sister going to Mars, becoming the queen of Mars, because they built a portal that can go to Mars. And they end up making a monument to her. And it ends up leaving the face on Mars there. For kids to watch, for Christ's sake. That's how popular this mystery is. Not because of me. It's in the culture, guys. So when you say, it's very important, and I mean this sincerely, when you say to listeners what you just said, oh, you know, yeah, I've seen shapes on the moon, Mars. Stop that. Let's be very critical about what we say. Wait a minute. If right, we're David. being critical about what we're saying, what I just heard is that popularity equates to veracity. Everybody who's seen that image, including the guy who announced it, Jerry Soffin, at the press conference, guys, said at the day it was released in 1976, it looks like a face. I'm not actually addressing that. I'm just we're addressing human something beings. else. We're human beings. We're recognizing, right. recognizing things. We think it looks like a facial monument until we determine it's not a facial monument. The human being's brain is going to say it looks like a facial monument. So that's all I'm saying, and I don't necessarily want to prove it today one or the other. That's not about, I'm not about that today. I'm about keeping the sense of, of, uh, of fairness in play here. It's a great mystery even to this day. And now you're talking about the moon, which is very akin to this mystery, because it's, again, planetoid 
having an artificial structure. I'm going to blow your guys' minds right now, all of you. Do you guys know what uh, Buzz Aldrin said a few weeks ago, a few months ago? Uh, the monolith thing? Yes. How can you write that comment off as blather? What was the comment, just for those who didn't Comment, notice. every one of your listeners should, when they get a chance, Google Buzz Aldrin and the monument or whatever. I think, I don't know where I'll bring it up, but I can get the link to any Monolith. But I don't think you need to. I think we can get it to you and we'll get it all to you through you. And Buzz is sitting there talking to a very credible guy in a very credible interview forum. And he's saying, there's a sense of wonder about space. There's a, I'm paraphrasing, I'm doing like Buzz did. There's a, there's a monument on one of the moons of Mars on Phobos. There's a, there's a monument there. Monolith. Yeah, yeah. Just like I'm talking right now. Why would he do that? He's not getting any younger. He's inspiring us that we found something on one of the moons of Mars. I, 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 by the way, as a journalist on this beat, I'm excited. I can now talk to the guys at NASA and go, what the hell is he talking about? And they're going to go, oh, yeah, well, we don't subscribe to his thinking. What do you, what do you thought? Where did he get that from? Where did he get that knowledge from? That there's a monument, or not a monument, a monolith. When you say a monolith, you're talking about a shape that doesn't look natural. Some kind of rectangular shape. It does not look... And by the way, that's a potato. No one even knows what... This, this Phobos story... It's amazing. You know, let me just a, bring up a couple of things here. Scientists at the University of Arizona, according to one story, who captured the original image, reckon it's just an unremarkable boulder, which could measure up to five meters across. Before you answer... Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net this is leslie kane and i'm with the coalition for freedom of information and you are listening to the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney Bob Kiviet, Don Ecker joining us this week, talking about lunar mysteries, also Martian mysteries. What's your response? That's typical. Did you see what happened in the last couple of days with the spiral in Norway? Ah, yes. Did spiral you? in Norway. That was what? They said it was the third stage of some Hold, kind of hold on. Let me, let me give it to you as straight as you can, okay? The okay. last two days, all you got to do is this, to show where we are in our culture. You have, I'll just go by the news organizations I saw covering it that I guess you guys would call the bastions of our, you know, kind of free press kind of thing. You have Brian Williams on NBC News the night of the event saying it's a mystery and we're looking into it. And the Russians are denying it's their missile, followed by a plethora of other media that claimed it had to be caused by 
an errant missile launch from a Russian sub or something like that. It had to be. And the Russians were saying, no, we didn't do anything. Okay. Next thing you know, in the middle of all that, they're saying, yes, you know what? We did have a missile launch, but that's still not caused by us. Okay. We don't believe that two are linked together. Finally, a lot of skeptics get out there and start showing how a missile could cause that pattern. But no one ever has an example on record, on video, on film, showing a missile going out of control, looking like that, and leaving that incredible array in the sky and everything like that. That leads us to Brian Williams doing a long piece on it, saying how it's a mystery. And who do they bring? Who do they bring in to cover the three ang angles of the mystery? Though they did have the word solved up there. They were saying that the conventional scientists are saying it must be caused by some missile from the Russians. We assume that. We're putting pieces together and we're saying it must be. But on the other hand, Brian Williams is covering the other two subjects, uh, possibilities and theories, just as, uh, as, as, as firmly. He's covering the UFO belief more than anything. That the UFO believers are going to believe this can't be as simple as that. There is nothing like that we've ever seen caused by a uh, missile launch. And so what you end up with, a huge difference of opinion between what that was and what you know, these scientists think and what pop culture thinks. And by the way, there's not one scientist yet who can prove that was caused by a missile. And there's not one Russian yet who stood up and said, yeah, look, look where a missile launch was. Look where that was. Uh, clearly it's us. Well, you know, and of course, it can also be top secret Russian missiles. But let's oh, get way, away from that. Well, okay? I want to get let's back to the point you brought up. Who do okay. they bring in? Who do they bring in to poo-poo Don Ecker's old friend? They bring in the usual papooer again, James Oberg. Unbelievable. And ironically, I think they bring James Oberg in, who Omni wanted me to talk to about the face on Mars, which I did. And within 15 minutes, I hung up the phone with Jim, a nice guy. He couldn't poo-poo anything about the face on Mars photographs themselves. He was talking much more about other issues. But I can tell you this, Jim is a nice enough guy, I'm sure, and he comes across decently on the air. But again, he was the, the expert brought in to cover the theory of a Russian missile, and he couldn't really conclude it in any real way. But, you know, Brian Williams' view is it's a mystery, even though people are saying it's solved. And if you look at every other UFO event in history, that's a big one. There always is a missile launch nearby. Flares were dropped by the, by the government. Blah, 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 swamp gas. There's always a dissonance created whenever there's a UFO event of some kind. Invariably, almost 100% of the time, there's another event that occurs almost simultaneously that seems to blur the whole thing. So I love this because the public's fascination, if you check the Internet, they're not buying all these explanations of a missile. Well, I, I just one quick question, though. Did so, I the missile to you about it? Have you seen it? You're uh, a human being. You're a brain. You got a brain. Why would you rely on a science? A well, science I, remember, Bob. Remember, a I'm the Bob. Bob, I'm the provincial one. You said it for everyone. You said, but a scientist said that it's a rock. A scientist, really? No, I didn't say. I didn't say a scientist. This is David Biedney speaking, not Gene. I'm the provincial one. Get your get your stuff straight well, here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, Thank that's you. all right. But yet, when the Russian defense ministry admits that they launched a rocket and that it failed, when the Russians come out and say this, we're we're to ignore that. Let me expand the conversation for a minute, if I can. Sure. Let's say, let's say for a minute that there's a UFO. There are UFOs. Let's say that UFOs, ironically, and actually and factually, 
have been reported mostly since we dropped the atomic bombs. Mostly. You can say in any historical class in the United States of America, the UFO wave, the modern UFO wave was launched right after World War II and during World War II, and mostly when you tie in the fact that Roswell was where we actually sent the Enola Gay, more or less, from to drop the bombs on Hiroshima, the bomb on Hiroshima, that you have, the first one, you have to say, hold on, is there a link between UFOs and our own ability to blow ourselves up with nuclear bombs? Okay, fine, let's go, let's go to the next step. Let's say that you're an alien, and you're worried about the world situation for whatever reason. And you look at the fact that the Russians are planning to do a test. What a nice moment to do a UFO scene where the public may be focusing on three things all at once. Nuclear weapons, which the Russians were claiming they were testing, UFOs in the sky, and Obama getting the peace prize in Norway that exact morning, the next day. What a great story. I hate to sound like Richard Hoagland because he loves those kind of things. But that's absolutely factual what I just said to you, not the UFO part. But the Russians had announced they were going to do something out there. That doesn't mean their missile caused that scene you see in the sky. Nor does it mean it didn't. And maybe that's the important point here. Oh, hold on, hold on. If it did, it's proof. It's so easy to prove. They know exactly the trajectory of their missile. They know exactly when the missile was launched. They know exactly where the stages were at exactly what time. And they could pinpoint that in a minute. And that could be proven tomorrow. And I'm waiting to see if that happens. Well, you know with stories, a lot of stories that come out like this, there's never a follow-up. And that's always the problem, too. Well, Brian, Brian Williams covered it beautifully by saying, which I give him a lot of credit, he said the Russians have used UFO events and rumors of events to hide some of their activities militarily. So it's a what a tapestry of mystery this is, right? So maybe they'll never announce they did the missile launch to cause the effect, but maybe they will. Let's see what happens. I'm looking forward to getting in touch with those scientists the next couple of weeks. The Russians have announced it. No, they have not. You show me where it says that event over Norway in the sky, the spiral, was caused by our missile. He said, show me that. I'd love to see it today. Send it to me. I need it. While you're looking for it. <laughs> I am looking for it. I want, I'm asking the Russians other questions about other stories I'm researching for the new show I'm doing, and I'll surely be asking about that one. And I'm dealing with a photographer right now, Christopher uh, Kozai, I think he says his name is. Okay, so well, I think one of the people who's quoted is saying he thinks it's the Russians is William Dimphy, a senior research scientist at the Aerospace Corporation. I'll tell you what, Bob, let's not get far afield on this. We're going back well, why to the is that, It's mystery. actually so germane to the moon stuff. It's so germane. In what germane. sense? In what sense? Because if we, when we show you the photographs of the moon stuff, it's not proof positive to, to some people. And I believe that when you break it down geometrically, and you analyze this properly, it is proof positive. So it's, it comes right back to who's got the time, the energy, and the wherewithal to create a program that will be scintillating to people and force people to focus on the imagery that has finally emerged from the NASA planetary archives. And who has the wherewithal to do that? Well, the networks do. And we were very close to getting this on, guess where? NBC. And NBC held on to this thing for about more or less nine months. And it came through the highest levels, went down to the news division. The news division felt it was extremely compelling and then asked us if we would do it with a sci-fi channel. And the sci-fi channel decided after much, much 
debate. They had other or one other show they had money for. They didn't have money for this one. Well, that's an issue, too, of course. Does a sci-fi channel care about anything other than providing entertainment? Whether it's UFOs, whether it's ghosts, or whether it is the science fiction fair they present, it's still about entertainment. But But I want to repeat what I said, and it's one of the reasons why I've agreed to do this today. We are ready to produce the program. We have the entire NASA expertise involved. We have the imagery that no one else has. We have the interest of one major network that's claiming their show broke. Well, I guess they were. They were bought by Comcast in the last few weeks. So something seems to be amiss here. We just didn't go to the right network at the right time. But I give the credit in a big way to the head of NBC, who agreed it was a great idea. I give credit to the news division that respected it and wanted to see a way it may be able to go on the air. And I even give Sci-Fi Channel some credit that they were willing to think about this and really give it a lot of thought. The bad news is they had a money problem. Okay, so we understand I- the money problems. But okay, now, having all this evidence, what about going to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street <laughs> Journal, since it's owned by your friend Rupert Murdoch? What do you think well, about I, those I, options? I will probably, and again, I, I would never call Rupert my friend. I will say that I don't know him. I will say that his executives made uh, a big hay out of my work and substantiated their positions at the network over my work. But I will never say I know Rupert. I might try to communicate directly with him about the moon stuff. This might be the first time. I mean, UFO footage, evidence of UFOs in the sky, that resonates with almost every network and every executive, and the viewers love it. It's easy, and everyone understands that. When you start dealing with the, the moon and the mysteries of these photographs, it requires like a, a little bit of a look into conspiracy. It requires you have to be willing to say, now, wait a minute. Were these photographs suppressed by our government? Were they suppressed? I don't know if Mr. Murdoch or anyone at that particular group wants to look with a prism or a microscope at the government right now. I don't know. But I know one thing. It's part and parcel of the story. There's no way you could have had this happen back in the 70s or early, late 60s, early 70s and have it be not suppressed. It would have to have been suppressed. Wouldn't we agree? Well, if all this stuff is happening on the moon and now we know there's water on the moon because right. we have that particular probe. If there are structures on the moon indicative of present or past life forms, whatever, Shouldn't we be going to the moon yesterday to find out what's going on? It all, it all depends on whether or not we've decided as a group, that, as a country, that we belong there. And right now, I don't think there's a consensus that we belong back there yet. And I don't know if it's only or in any way related to these structures, which regardless of whatever they are, they need to be looked into. There is no doubt. We need to look what these are. I mean, if they're natural, which is impossible in my mind, all right, but let's let's cover that. Let's let's you know roll a rover up to it and see what the hell it is. And we know we can do it a lot easier on the moon than we can looking at that strange shape rock or what Buzz Aldrin calls out on one of the moons of, of Mars. We can do it a lot easier right here in our own backyard. And the moon is our backyard. Why aren't we going back there? See, one of the first things I was asked by another channel that stepped in after NBC, um, they asked me, could, Bob, could we, send a, could we point the telescope at these structures on the moon and see them? And the answer is no, we can't. The resolution of detail that we will get because of atmospheric breakup and everything else is not good enough. 
However, I was also asked, could we then turn the, turn the Hubble telescope before it goes out to these areas of the moon? And the answer is no, because the optics of that particular telescope are not made to focus near like the moon. So I showed them the best resolution that the, the Hubble will get on the moon based on what I know. And there's basically a real conundrum here. Why can't we get really sharp images of these moon artifacts or moon structures? Why not? I'm really confused because it does look like there's a theorem I was shown scientifically in the last few weeks and months. And this theorem requires you to build like a 30-yard optical-like glass. And if you could put a 30-yard radius of circumference, I'm not sure which it is. I think it's radius. 30-yard radius across circle of glass and put that somewhat into a telescope, making it easy for your listeners, that may be able to image these areas. And we don't have a telescope like that. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. So, what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Bob Kiviet, TV producer and writer. Don Ecker, professional curmudgeon. We're talking about Lunar Mysteries. <laughs> okay, Bob, so here's the question, of course. Wait a if minute, I all just this woke stuff... up. What the hell's going on here? I just woke up. Don's not a curmudgeon. Okay, he says no, he is. Uh, it says Master Curmudgeon on his Skype username. Oh, no, he's joking. I never joke. Don was joking on this, on this but Okay, but seriously, okay. So if we can't get it with the Hubble telescope, we can't point a telescope at it, what makes these photographs any good? Well, I, I, there's one question you forgot to ask. What's so special about these photographs? They're shot from, Don, how many miles up was the orbiter going around the moon before they uh, released the limb and went down? They were about 30 miles, I believe. Okay, so imagine, guys, 30 miles above the moon with a sharp Hasselblad camera pointing out the window. We will never have that access again until when we send another group of astronauts in orbiter around the moon. And let's just do that. 
Well, you know, I would think, though, that if they had evidence, if any of them believed, enough scientists believed this was true, wouldn't they go to the president, to NASA, to say, hey, guys, we've got to mount some kind of expedition here. If we can't afford to do it with astronauts, maybe send another orbiter out there. We've got to do something. Well, now it all comes to money, I believe. I mean, good God. Look, look the nation is about bankrupt right now. I mean, we are... About? Yeah, ultra trillions of dollars in debt. Can you imagine anybody going to the president and say, hey, I'd like to uh, cop up, the country to cop up, ah, maybe $100 billion so we can go back to the moon. For what? That would be the big question. For what? Never have. absolute evidence that the moon is inhabited, was once inhabited, that someone is there now? The people that are in the know, the people that are important already know whether that's true or not. And there's a status quo right now that that they're not about to disturb, Gene. I mean, we all that are here right now, we all should know that. There is a status quo, and what benefit would come from disturbing that status quo right now? If you're talking about UFOs, perhaps ET bases, past or present, on the moon. There's no plus column for that. There's no upside to communicate with what might be living there? The photographs that I know that I've seen seem to indicate some sort of archaeological remains. There's one photograph. I mean, a lot of these photographs photographs are, are questionable. There is one photo, though, one specific photo that, with my provincial mind, I find very compelling that looks like these gear-like shapes that there's no way. And I'll go on record saying, even though I have only a provincial mind, there is no way that those gear-like shapes are a natural formation. It's absolutely impossible. I'm with you. It, it also looks like this is from a very old structure that is in no way active. All right. This looks like it's actually part of it. It looks like it's buried under some rock. Um, it looks like it could have been the something that crashed there. But it, it's absolute. I mean, in my opinion, my provincial opinion, it's something artificial. Now, that's to differentiate that from a lot of other material that's presented as being evidence of anomalous stuff like Dickhead Lear has thrown out into the world in the past, where you've got what are clearly imaging artifacts from satellite transmissions, from a large amount of DCT compression. For those less provincial amongst you, that would be discrete cosine transform compression. There is a, a, there's a, a good amount of stuff that basically falls into the category of noise, but... There definitely are some photos, and even that photo of the thing that looks like it's leaving the treads. That photo is odd. It's extremely odd, actually. But my guess is that if you dug, and and none of us on the show right now has enough scientific understanding of moon geology to be able to make absolute statements about that that one image. Well, yeah, I can. You can't? Go ahead. I can. And if you have that photo... You know which photo, photo obviously, which the one with the tracks on it, right? Absolutely, I know which one. Okay. And if you follow that object, whatever the hell it is, all the way back, you will find that it came up and out of a crater. Okay. Now, NASA stated on the record that it's a rolling boulder, that something caused it to roll. Okay, now, I'm not saying that's absolutely impossible. I am saying that it's highly unlikely 
What the, the lunar sun, the lunar winds? What are they? What are yeah, they talking about? Something rolled up out of a crater and then left what appeared to be a tracked vehicle impression in the lunar soil. When I was in the service, I saw a lot of objects like APCs, armored personnel carriers, tanks, and what have you, leave tracks very similar to what that appears to be. You know, I'll just be real honest up front and blunt. If that is a rolling rock, I'll kiss your butt. That's going to be done on next week's episode of the Paracast. Don, I'm in agreement with you there. And I I guess some of my questions would revolve around what's the actual length of that uh, of that tread? Do you know that off the top of your head? Do you know how long that thing actually is? That's no, about ten not. miles. Maybe All right. Miles. All right. So, if there had been, let's just say, for argument's sake, because you know there, there are things that that happen on the moon that sometimes appear to be odd that aren't. I know that that uh, when in the last few years when Jacques Vallée went on coast to coast and a caller called in and asked about flashes of light on the moon, and uh, Nori. And made the infamous comment to Valet, what, what about angels? John, could there have been angels? Uh, you know, in the typical Nori fashion, which was just absolutely, uh, you know, just embarrassing. If I was Valet, I would have been just like curled up, just crying when I heard that. <laughs> um, you know, completely ignored the fact that. Other than are, smacking Nori in the face. Right. That there are these micro asteroid hits on the planet of the, on the surface of the moon that create bright flashes of light. Good amount of energy is released. Um, and it appears as a momentary pinpoint of flash of light. So we know about that. There's a tremendous amount of crap flying around our, our thing called space. And when these things impact other surfaces, I mean, you know, we see it all the time here on Earth, you know, stuff uh, uh, impacting the, the atmosphere of the planet, leaving these bright trails and, you know, Perseus meteor shower, you know, figure it out. But that tread, if something had impacted the surface of the moon and had sent let's say, rocks flying, you still wouldn't see, I don't think you'd see something like that tread because it would, it would not be that uniform. If it was a rock that had been like skidding along the surface, I think it would have been more of an erratic, more of an entropic thread. You wouldn't see it that uniform right. the way that it, that it appears. Okay. And in my opinion, I don't know much about this topic at all. Uh, certainly not digital imaging. I know nothing about that. But... That one image, and Don, you know which one I'm talking about, those, those, those gear-like things. Yeah. To me, that image is an absolute smoking gun. But, but hold on, you left out one very important point. The individual- oh, I'm sure I left out lots of important no, points. Remember, I only, no, 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 I did. Good. Hey, provincial mind, baby. No, you're a lot more than provincial. You're more than provincial. Give yourself some credit. You uh, you covered it. Why would I? No, 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 not at all. I'm following your lead, Kiviat. Well, you covered you covered the issue about angels, and we won't go any further than that. Okay, Uh, you covered that uh, bastion of journalistic uh, uh, overage there. Well, that's a sentence. I don't know, but you don't have any reasons to believe right now that the structure you're talking about isn't as powerful as you believe it is. Because that's what inspired the individual I'm telling you about to keep pounding NASA for all the other photographs. It was that image we're talking about, that structured image that freaked his wife out, who was a not really a skeptic, but she thought he was like a little bit out there for sure, that he was spending all his time looking at this thing or these ideas. And he had seen a few areas of the moon. 
that were very suspicious. But when he saw this one, he devoted his entire year or two to his project after that. So Now, uh, our astute listeners, because they're not as provincial as I am, will now be wondering, will now be asking the question about why we're not mentioning this person's name. Because he's under an agreement with me. And that's fine. That's fine. Uh, what people need to know, smart Paracast listeners can go look in our forums, and there have been references to this. So if you go and look on the forums, you, you can find this. And I actually bought the ebook version of that book. I ordered it. So, so people can actually go and find this. Just, not, just, just say. He's not a secret. He's not really a secret. I don't want people to run around, you know, after this is over, going, "Oh, Bob Kiviet is keeping it a secret." No, I'm not keeping it a secret. I'm trying to make sure that when I walk into the next executive's office as I try to sell the show for television, which you got to sell it, you know, they're not sitting there going, "Oh, but Bob, everybody's seen the photographs already," because. And by the way, seeing them with no no analysis, no uh, surrounding support and or debunking. I mean, when you just look at the photographs by themselves, though this individual presents it very well the way he does it, it's still not a uh, an investigative process. So we want to bring this to an investigative process. We want to sit down with the heir apparent to Carl Sagan's legacy, who I know personally, just so you know. It's not just me on the Moon Show. I have worked very closely with someone who's a very top executive in Hollywood and uh, been been one of the top people in television for the last uh, 15, 20 years. And he also believes, like I do, that there is no doubt. I want you guys to know, this was not Bob Kiviet of the alien autopsy fame walking into an office only talking about the moon. It was, because I, I understand my stuff is sensational, and there are people might say it's all entertainment, but I, treat, I try to treat it like a journalist in science would do. So these images, to end the story once and for all, should be shown to the public in a network TV program, allow NASA to comment, allow the government to comment. I have absolutely no problem. I think everybody will get their say, and the public could decide exactly what they believe. All right, let's look at that. We have just a few minutes left with the episode, and we know that NBC doesn't have any money because they can't get any shows to succeed. They gave it all to Jay Leno to do that hour. (laughs) All kidding aside, I think you have to give NBC a little bit of credit on this one. A lot of times when you're hurting, when you're not the number one network, you're a little more open to trying something out. And I think that was true with Fox to the Alien Autopsy. They were trying to be the new guy on the block and see what they could do to crack, you know, some eggs. And I think the moon could have been a real good uh, kind of event program for NBC. And if there's another network out there that wants to be, uh, you know, kind of cracking some eggs, uh, we think we got the great show to wake people up. Well, let's look at that now. Where are we going with this thing? You have this information. You have the photographs. Certainly they would be at the very least worth further analysis. Where do you think you can take it? We kind of covered a few areas. I said newspapers. Oh, no, you another, have no, to another, keep another, it. Another, you have to keep it know. in America, Bob? Another no. Let's not, like, uh, try to give a false impression here. No offense. They, the only thing that occurred is in September of this year, finally, uh, we were told by the uh, NBC Universal group, if you will, that they could not go ahead. So it was only mid-September that we found that out. So it's only October and November that we've been looking for a new home for the show. And I officially, I officially presented it uh, at another network 
last week. So let's see what happens. Don, what is your feeling about this? Where do you expect to go with working with Bob about this particular project or anything else that might interest our listeners? The entire lunar thing to me has always been one of the great mysteries that is close enough to us that we can perhaps actually, figuratively speaking, get our hands around. I have, over the years, garnered a number of photographs that I still, even today, as jaded as I've become, in some cases leave me absolutely breathless. So my sole purpose with this has been trying to get or assist in getting something together that uh, hopefully at some point we can show to the largest possible audience and perhaps start something that I've been trying to do going all the way back to my initial foray into the entire UFO thing. And that is to find an audience that at some point will become galvanized to begin demanding that the government finally once and for all come clean with the information they've been guarding jealously for going on close to 70 years now. And I don't want to get dramatic. That's always been at the bottom of of what I've been trying to do. And by the way, one thing I I found interesting is that um, when you bring up the New York Times or any newspaper, whatever ones you were mentioning, we live in a world now where everything is so fast and to crack through the clutter The idea of an image, a visual image, speaks not a thousand words, but speaks maybe a million words these days and stops people in their tracks. So, you know, the idea of television or an independent feature film or a major feature film in theaters about this subject seems a lot more likely a place you're going to see this information come out. And that should not disparage its credibility just because it's coming across on a, on a television screen for a commercial television network in the day and age of Twitter and all this other mindless, babbling baloney that we spend our time with. So I think that television still is an expedient way to crack right through and get right to the heart of the masses, basically. And what would be the problem? Put a great show on like this, let people see what the mysteries of the moon have been from day one. And basically, Don's right. You know, he presented this to me years ago. You know, NASA did a study on lunar phenomena before they ever, ever sent men to the moon. And there's been phenomena occurring on the moon observed by our own our own telescopes and even before that for a millennia. So we need to really say what the hell's going on the moon? What's going on up there? Let me ask you, Bob. Oh, by the way, one last one last thing. So we don't waste our listeners' time today. There are absolute transcripts you can download from the internet from the lunar from the NASA archives that literally are recently released transcripts of tapes that were not made public initially, where you hear the astronauts saying from some of the missions, wow, look at that bright light by that crater. Wow, look at that that shape looks really, really rectangular. They describe things like I'm saying to you. Very strange, and it was kept from us for a very long time. All right, let me ask you a question here. Assuming that you don't get this project sold, where do you go from here? More probing into the paranormal on UFOs or what? I think what I think what we've seen most recently, and you can kind of bookend this sort of like our show today. When you look what happened with the Blair Witch Project about ten years ago, and you look what happened recently with a Paranormal Activity movie, if you tell the public 
I have evidence of a ghost, or I have evidence of an evil spirit, or I have evidence of an alien, or a ghost, or, or, or a UFO, or, or, or structures of aliens on the moon of some kind, you know, alien structures. They want to see it. They want to see what you're talking about. So basically the answer to your question is, I think we're going to start telling the public we all know shows like Ghost Hunters and all that. It's all entertainment cooked up. It's not, no one's investigating anything. It's all basically television, you know, genre. But we want to get back to what's really, what's paranormal. What's unexplainable that we need to explain that has a real provenance to it, shot by people. The new UFO show I'm doing right now, which I can't announce officially, but I'm sure you'll be hearing about it in the days to come, will be the quintessential next big UFO special showing the best evidence caught on tape of UFOs ever shown. And it's just from my last time I've done those two shows for Fox about UFOs caught on tape. And my goal is to sit in front of the NASA experts, Department of Defense, all those people, and ask them, explain these flying saucers caught, and yes, I said it, flying saucers caught on tape in our sky in the last couple of years, doing maneuvers we can't explain. Tell us what these saucers are, these flatbed trucks being moved through a major city that no one can explain what these huge saucers are. Okay, you're raising a lot of issues that maybe we'll have to explore in a future episode. Sure. We want to thank Master Curmudgeon Don Ecker, writer and producer Bob Kiviet. Thank you both for joining us this week on the Paracast. You bet. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.